were the hosts of this event, and I'm so excited to have everybody here talk about the LA River. I just wanted to say something about places who are really the convener of this event. You may or may not know um, places. This is a wonderful journal that does a sort of long-form approach to sort of deeper ideas and discussions in architecture and urbanism and landscape architecture. And I think on your seats, you'll have a postcard you know, for subscription, it'd be great for everybody here to subscribe to places if you don't already. But also, it doesn't say on the card, but it'd be really great if you wanted to donate something to places because they are completely independent. They're not affiliated with any university. They're a nonprofit. They've been doing this amazing work since I think this is the 10th anniversary of the digital version of places. It started out as a, as a print journal in like 30 years ago, most Angelinos knew little about their local river, dismissing its concrete encased trickle as a joke when they didn't ignore it altogether. This is no longer the case. In the last decade, interest in Los Angeles' urban river has skyrocketed. So it's that skyrocketing interest that brings us all here tonight and to this uh, distinguished panel of designers, historians, activists, um, and architects. So a few introductions. Um, Victoria De Palma, in the middle, is an associate professor of architectural history at URI at USC, specializing in modern Europe. 
and her most recent book is Wasteland, which is a kind of prehistory of uh, post-industrial landscapes. Alex Robinson, uh, next to Victoria, is an associate professor of landscape architecture and urbanism at USC and a principal in the Office of Outdoor Research and the Landscape Morphologies Lab. And his book, The Spoils of Dust, tells the story of the efforts to reinvent Owens Lake, which, as you all know, was emptied more than a century ago to supply water to this city. Um, Mia Lehrer, uh, I need to say now that Mia Lehrer is stuck in Argentina. There has been an airport strike. But Mia was so keen to participate tonight that she has sent a video. So, so Mia's video will follow Alice Victoria. And of course, you all know Mia is the founder of Studio MLA. She's worked on numerous projects in Los Angeles, um, including many on the LA Riverfront. Right at the end, um, Lou Pesce is an artist at the Metabolic Studio, um, which was founded by Lauren Vaughn. And their latest project is bending the river back into the city. But tonight, I think the conversation will be about their water wheel project. Next to uh, Lou, Miguel Luna, a principal of Dave Luna Consulting, is a longtime advocate uh, for watershed awareness and social justice for underserved communities. And among other things, he has coordinated um, six-week Agua universities to educate young people about water rights and watershed planning. Uh, William Deverell uh, is a professor of history at USC focusing on the American West, and his many books include Land of Sunshine, which is an environmental history of metropolitan Los Angeles, and Los Angeles, a tale of three rivers. Uh, and finally, uh, Deborah Weintraub is the chief deputy city engineer for the city of Los Angeles, the highest ranking architect in the city. And um, as such, she leads a department of hundreds of people with hundreds of active projects totaling billions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> tonight is Victoria and Alex will start, and we've asked all of the um, panelists to respond to a provocation, which is based upon Victoria and Alex's article, in which they write, the LA River has always resisted something as simple as a solution. Um, we we uh, noted that in the past year, various projects to revitalize the river have gathered momentum. And just recently, the Los Angeles County has released the latest version of the LA River Master Plan. I think it was just like today or yesterday. Yes, it's, in a, it's not the final version, but it's close. So this is a good moment to revisit their essay and to consider the proposals that are now shaping uh, this latest chapter in the river's story. To consider what are these civic and environmental repercussions of what has been done to the river in the past, what are the questions that designers, policymakers, and citizens should be, should be thinking about as this next chapter in the river's history is written? So with that, please join me in welcoming our panel. So good evening, everyone. I'd like to begin by thanking Nancy Levinson and Deborah Lilly for organizing the event as well as Barbara Bester and Bester Architecture for so generously hosting us. In my brief remarks tonight, I would like to speak a little bit less about the LA River, which my fellow panelists, I'm sure, will have much more to say about than I, 
uh, and talk a little bit about the role of history or the humanities in the public sphere. And, um, and in order to do this, what I'd like to do is to give a brief biography of the article that Alex and I wrote on the LA River, Willful Waters, which uh, is up on the screen. So the article that we wrote began its life as a straightforward, uh, more or less straightforward, academic conference paper. In the fall of 2014, Alex, uh, who's my colleague in the School of Architecture at USC, came up to me and said that Dumbarton Oaks was organizing a conference on river cities. Um, this was organized by the then Director of Landscape Studies, John Beardsley, and the now Director, uh, Thaisa Wei. And one of the unusual things about this conference was that they actively reached out and were soliciting papers from teams of designers and historians who together would uh, look at a river and bring their different perspectives into a kind of dialogue. And so, um, so Alex, coming from the designer side, uh, approached me, coming from the historian side, and said, did I want to pitch a paper on the LA River together? And so we did. Uh, we gave our paper at Dunbar Noakes, and, um, and then, as is the way in academia, it was, we then uh, developed it into a book chapter. And about three years after the conference, it was published in this book uh, here, uh, titled River City, City River. So it includes our chapter on the LA River. It actually also includes another chapter on the LA River by uh, Mia Lehrer. Um, and, uh, and a number of other chapters on cities uh, and their rivers, both historical and contemporary. And there were a number of other collaborations between designers and, and historians as well. So one of the aims of our chapter, as a collaboration between a designer and a historian, although Alex, I should say, is also a historian in his own right, uh, and I am no designer, uh, was to consider contemporary design interventions and politics in the light of the past. Our shared interest in the aesthetics of landscape means that we are both interested in how the LA River is perceived, described, and represented, and what kind of debts these images, words, and ideas might have to history. Our piece argues that a powerful idea of what the river had been in the past has galvanized contemporary interventions and debates. Some of our questions included, what was this idea of a river that had sparked the imaginations of so many? Where did the idea come from, and from which traditions did it draw? Because of my own research, I was interested in the connections that I saw between the kinds of narratives that were being generated about the Los Angeles River in recent years, and much older ones about the topic of wasteland, dating from the 17th century and even before. In both, I saw a similar constellation of ideas, including notions of proper and improper use, an ambiguous aesthetics of disgust, a radical questioning of the consequences of human actions, and a belief in the utopian potential of marginal uh, or forgotten spaces. So both of these narratives questioned earlier narratives which foregrounded progress and control and utilized the tools of landscape design in quest of a kind of redemption. Now a couple of months before the book was published, and this is uh, as Nancy mentioned, Nancy and I had a, had a phone call and um, I didn't have anything that I was particularly had on the corner, but I kind of casually mentioned that Alex and I had a chapter that was about to come out, and Nancy immediately suggested that uh, she take a look at it and, and see whether it might be appropriate to excerpt uh, in places. So our chapter in this River Cities book, and the chapter that appeared online in places, 
appeared at almost exactly the same time. The two versions are almost identical, except that the Places article has a few, a slightly different selection, selection of images, thank you, and also benefited from Nancy's expert editorial eye and uh, scalpel. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the two versions were almost identical, but I think what is interesting is that they had very different lives. The book chapter was published in this handsome volume, which is now uh, sitting probably in university libraries and can be purchased for $65, slightly cheaper on Amazon. Um, and the readership of this version of our article is probably somewhere between two, that would be Alex and myself, <laughs> 13 uh, tops. Uh, the, the article instead that was published on the Island Places Journal was uh, excerpted um, and, and sorry, picked up by long reads and managed to reach beyond those confines of academia and led to us all being here tonight. So you have these two articles, I mean, it's essentially the same article, but two very different lives that they led. And this is really thanks to Place's journal and its commitment to bringing uh, long-form works of scholarship uh, kind of into, uh, into a larger conversation, into a broader audience. So, the point of narr narrating this history is not to lament the death of the book. I mean, actually, there was a New York Times article today which was arguing precisely the contrary. But I would like to use this tale of two articles to ask some questions about the role of the humanities in the public sphere. How can scholarship break out of the confines of the academy and contribute to conversations in the world of design, in government, and local communities? This is not simply a question about publishing and medium, internet versus print, but also about content, about structure, about tone. How are dialogues established between groups that have common interests but may speak very different languages? How do we construct inclusive conversations that may lead to thoughtful action? And finally, and this is a slightly self-serving question, what kinds of questions can historians ask and try to answer that matter to designers, to policymakers, and to the public at large? So these are a few of the questions that I hope we have a chance to touch on tonight. Good evening. Um, uh, thank you, Places and Barbara Best Directors for organizing this. Uh, this is, uh, I think, more than a panel, it's kind of a summit for all the people that are here in the audience. It's really kind of important for people to see out there, a lot of familiar faces. Um, I, I thought about you know, how, how to sort of present this article, and I thought that this is an opportunity to think about something that has been on my mind but wasn't really a focus of the article, but I think swerves from the article in an interesting way. And um, one of the things that Victoria so uh, eloquently pointed out and sort of connected to history was this narrative of loss that has really driven the river's uh, revitalization. And, and sort of all ideas around the river have been often have been framed around this narrative of loss, that we destroyed the river, that we desecrated it, that, it's, that it, was, it was killed or it's dead, and that we're at the verge of a rebirth, that we're about to revitalize it. And all, this, is, this is all the language that we use when we think about the river. And the, and the river, you know, aesthetically is an extremely potent uh, representation of that narrative, the concrete, um, encasement, and then in particular in the Glendale Narrows where you see the vegetation growing out of that concrete. It practically speaks about that narrative. But one thing I think that's um, 
often overlooked, and, and it's a narrative that landscape architects and artists and various activists often talk about, is the kind of the uh, kind of the opposite narrative of what has the river in its freakish form given us? And beyond this narrative of loss, what has that form, that concrete, this sort of strange space that doesn't really have a normalized script given the city and provided us? Because we have this explosive interest in the river, and I don't think it's just because we think we see it as, as a loss. We also find something really interesting within that embankment that satisfies us and, and provides us something. And the question that I have is sort of, can we understand what it is that that is so that when we redesign this river, when we reimagine it, we preserve or perpetuate some of those ideas and some of those qualities. And I was trying to sort of, and I think that this is important for a number of reasons. I think it's important that we understand, I think that, that what the river is now is wrapped up in its identity and is an important sort of consideration as we move forward that we don't maybe erase its current and beautiful or interesting and slightly tortured identity that it has now. But, it's, but this is a difficult narrative to um, understand and carry forward in public forums because it sort of lies in opposition a little bit to, and I think a lot to the revitalization narrative. But the, um, so I've sort of, I've thought like, what, what are some things about the river that we can think about that are its current identity beyond this narrative of loss? that we might value and perpetuate in designs. And I think, and part of my interest in looking at this is that oftentimes that conversation gets reduced to this industrial aesthetic, that it kind of has this harsh industrial um, Kafka-esque one. Uh, there's, there's the friends of the vast industrial Kafka-esque structures um, <laughs> out there, <laughs> but phobics. Um, but it's, it gets reduced down to this conversation about aesthetics. And I think that there is a, and I'm going to try to be short because we have a lot of people here, but the, the two examples I think that are interesting that I would like to discuss a little bit more is, one, this idea that the river inspires a sort of agency, a sort of engagement um, that is more consequential, it feels more consequential and more creative than the average open space. And that's partially because we feel like we have a role in its revitalization, that we could have a voice in its future. Um, but it's also because the space is not scripted like a normal public space. It doesn't ask, it doesn't tell us how to use it or what to do within that space because it was never designed to be used. It sort of exists in this other realm. And I think that we may, we may not understand the extent to which that is special. And it is, so the, in that way, the river is not just a kind of preserve for ecology but also a preserve for a way of being, and a way of acting, and a way of thinking. It's almost like a preserve, uh, this is from Jenny O'Dell's recent book, you know, kind of like a form of consciousness, of being in that river, and being in a kind of unscripted space where we have to bring something to it. It doesn't sort of tell us where to press go, or what to do. And the other part of it, I think, that is not well understood, or totally recognized in terms of its aesthetic, and why we sort of love the river the way it is now, some of us, at least, um, at times, I would say, but not, <laughs> qualified, not, not totally in love with every part of the river, um, but uh, is the juxtaposition that it, that it has. And I think, it, I think that's what makes actually Los Angeles really an amazing place, is juxtaposition. Um, I think of uh, Jonathan Gold seeing the juxtaposition of these different, really distinct identities of food culture in the city 
and this and the, and whether it wasn't intended to be interesting or beautiful that way, but there is it kind of harkens back to ideas of mixture and the picturesque 18th century theories of landscape aesthetics, where it's about uh, kind of dramatic juxta juxtaposition. And of course, it wasn't really intended to be interesting, but I think it's important that as we go forward that we understand that that is an asset and probably an inevitability that we can't, um, you know, we can't make it a single, almost uh, unified space. And we could exhaust ourselves trying to reinvent the river to, to look like another river that we saw out there when we have these incredible juxtapositions that kind of give it that resonance and that excitement and drama. So I guess my provocation is like, is any of that right? <laughs> and um, should we be thinking about that? Do we need to design in a different way um, with those ideas in mind? Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, like when we come to designing, how do we think deeper than a style and think about these kinds of more possibly more meaningful ways in which the river currently enriches us.
the LA River has tributaries, a long and a always complex. Each of the cities, the myriad of communities, the land uses the Malta River represent a different texture, character, and setting. One size just doesn't fit all. There must be flexibility in the planning process for 51 miles of river, 102 miles of tributaries, and 824 square miles of watershed. By responding to each context, the river can strengthen the sense of place while becoming a tangible quarter as it flows its way down to Long Beach, supporting urban development, habitat, parkland, and the human experience. It's encouraging to see community groups, city and county agencies, and environmental and social justice nonprofits come together to talk and build partnerships and relationships. Regular communication helps, and all these planning efforts has gotten us all together. What are the civic and environmental repercussions of the past that we should be thinking of? The River Channel was a gash to the metropolitan area. It was an economic, social, cultural, and environmental barrier between communities. After nearly a century of men trying to control the river, we have a responsibility and opportunity to integrate natural and built systems to create a living river for a more livable city. The river is one of our greatest opportunities to connect, energize, and promote a common sense of good. We need to take a contemporary approach to urban dewatering. The healthy river will create multi-funded for excessive solutions. We should look to existing city planning and economic development efforts that advocate for a balanced development approach and a respect for the existing community while creating opportunities for jobs, housing, and financial literacy. What are the questions that the designers, policymakers, and citizens should be addressing now for the present and for the future? We have made much progress. However, momentum is going in, momentum is going in the right direction. And Julianos now know that the river exists. We have to celebrate that. But we must continue working on harnessing the river's potential. Sometimes major investments in parks appear to be a luxury. They're not a luxury. Coexisting, celebrating, connecting to our cultural, historic, and natural environment is a vital part of being human. It takes gumption and leadership at every level and in every community to make things happen. Who is making decisions about density? Who is, who is public housing, parks, bikeways, and other infrastructure near the river being, how is it being decided? Um, and uh, how are we uh, strategically uh, working on all these projects? We are at this threshold moment. Smaller projects like the bikeway parks have shown the potential of the river. In the next few years, we need bigger, more immersive, and ambitious moves like the three bridges that are now being built and hopefully Taylor Yards. We're all very optimistic about this 100-acre parcel. These signature projects will allow the river to come alive in a big way in the next few years, not in 20, not in 30, in the next few years. Other cities do this in the country. Um, they have been doing it. We can also do it. And we look forward to seeing what uh, some of the governance structures and the governance discussions are going to be. So in the next few decades, we can see many of these projects come to fruition. Thank you. And uh, we, I look forward to hearing how the evening went. <laughs> I do the I do a video too. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm a historian and I'm I'm very grateful to be here and to be asked and um, 
the long arc of the, of the paired piece or the co-authored piece is, uh, I think, very much what we need. In my work on the river, um, which tends to hunker down in the 19th century, it's remarkable how often it's noted. Um, it, it is an exceedingly important cartographic space on the, on the landscape. And of course, 19th century people are more riparian than we are. So they, they know the river. They place themselves on this side or that side of it, up or down it. Um, it becomes a reference point, much like we now have the freeways, west of the uh, 405, east of the 405, north of the 10, etc. The river really does occupy that. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, but it's important to remember the river is the uh, region's most important water supply up until about 1900. Um, it's at around then um, that that cartographic memory of the river and space and place alongside the river begins to fade because the river um, exceeded, uh, continues to become a problem on the landscape. So there's a kind of county-wide awareness that the river's a problem. And the problem is um, twofold. The problem is it either has too much water in it, so it has wintertime floods, uh, or it has too little water in it, and it, in a Mediterranean climate, it dries out in the summer. And so in a land-based economy, in a real, real estate-based economy, if your river doesn't water your land so it can grow agricultural products, that's a problem. And if your river floods out your land and takes it away so you can't sell it, that's a problem. So in fairly typical style, um, the address of the river as a problem became hitched to, if we solve this problem, we're making progress. And so the 20th century became, we'll arrest that problem through progress, and you get the brutalist landscape design of a river corralled and sent out to sea, much uh, coincident with the arrival of, let's go get a river. So 1914, 15, 16, the river gets its early paving vision, um, by the County Board of uh, Flood, uh, Flood Control. Um, and then that's coincident with William Mulholland and Confreres going up and getting the Owens River. Um, I think one of the issues that's fascinating about the piece, and uh, particularly Victoria's comment about history and humanities, is arresting the river was really in some ways a history problem. Um, the length of human memory in the basin didn't go back very far. And so trying to um, get a hold of human memory in the basin in the 19-teens, what's the history of this river? What's the biography of this river? What's a 10-year flood or a 50-year flood or a 100-year flood? The initial presumption was, let's go to the Anglos. And the Anglos had been here two years, or five, or 20, or 40, and had no deep memory, and also were amnesic about floods um, and large landscape changes. So in the early 20th century, some cleverer people said, Go ask the indigenous people. Go ask the Mexican people. Go ask the mixed race people, whose memories stretch further back, of course, um, and oral traditions stretch further back. So amalgamating that knowledge is a lesson to us that we'd better get really deep histories of this river. And then, of course, in ways that the early 20th century knew they needed to do, but they didn't quite have the tools, let's go to other disciplines whose time scales are geologic or hydrologic. And let's just gather as much information as we can. The gathering of all that information in the early 20th century brought us to the paved river. And now our challenge is to think of that. Now we think of the river as a promise, not a problem. So our challenge is how do we make the promise of the river into our version of progress? And I agree with Mia. I think we can do it. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you.
How's everybody doing? Uh, first, uh, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the first peoples of this ancestral and unceded territory uh, that the river runs through. Uh, with respect to their elders, past and present, we recognize that the Gavilinho Tangva, the Fernandeño Tatavian, the Ventureño Shumash, who are still here and are committed to lifting up their stories and culture. The fondest memories I have uh, growing up as a child are um, spending time with my mom and my dad when we were all together in my hometown of Colombia uh, in a river called Las Piedras, the boulders. And uh, those boulders provided um, dissipation of the river's energy uh, that provided a very uh, safe, uh, cooling, uh, and at the same time warm space uh, for me to hang out in. And uh, in that time, in that river, I learned several things. Uh, I learned that um, to respect nature, I, uh, a, a kinship with the river was formed, and I also felt in sort of an entitlement grew of um, nature. I felt that I was entitled to nature. I felt that I was entitled to that river. And with that entitlement comes a lot of responsibility. Uh, around the uh, age of eight years old, uh, my mom and my dad separated. And my mom made the long journey uh, from our hometown uh, to Los Angeles. Um, and with that separation also came that separation of that friendship that uh, had been formed with that river. Uh, that kinship uh, was um, uh, fragmented. Um, I found the LA River at the age of 13 here and uh, fell in love with it then. Um, knew there was a friendship there to be formed. Um, however, it wasn't until uh, later in my life that I was able to really find purpose um, in it and what my purpose would be. Um, I'd like to pick up on uh, one of the quotes from the article uh, that brought us here together today, and thank you so much for the article. It was a very well-written article, and I really appreciated it. Um, and the quote, part of the quote reads that, suddenly the revitalization effort was transformed into a chess game with activists scrambling to take sides where none had previously existed. I'd like to propose and point out that the chess game um, has started way a long time ago. The chess game started when the indigenous people's lands were taken to accommodate new settlers. And that the chess game was played when people were carried out of their homes, out of Chavez Ravine. Metaphorically speaking, I would add that the problem then and sometimes continues to be today is that some are given chess pieces with chess rules to play on the chess board, backed up financially, politically, while others are given checker pieces with checker rules to play on that same board. And obviously that creates a huge problem. Um, 
I'd also like to add that um, the fight and the rights for the rights of the river and to give the river a voice and to protect it as kin uh, didn't start 10 years ago, didn't start 20 years ago, didn't start 30 years ago. It started a long way back. And um, what happened was that those advocating for it weren't the right color at that time. And that they didn't have the political backing to be able to have those decisions and those voices being represented. They had the will, uh, obviously, uh, but they didn't have the power. I'd like to propose that if we're gonna move forward, uh, we must, and I implore you that we must acknowledge the roles and struggles that people and communities before us played in building the scaffold for others to climb, to move the needle of where we are today. Um, we can do a better job of engaging. Um, I use uh, smiles as metrics. I think uh, it lets me know when a community is doing well and when a community is not, if there's a lack of. Uh, I strongly believe that um, in that, and with that I ask myself, are we rehabilitating our river and communities with the goal of generating more smiles and laughter? Uh, smiles and laughter are not only a metric, but certainly a great tool. We learn to smile and laugh before we learn to speak. Uh, studies have shown that uh, laughter is not a response to jokes, but rather a response to community and kinship. Uh, and that most smiles uh, come from statements like, how are you? Or how was your day? Or how was that interview? Just interactions amongst people. So uh, my answer to your question of how do we move forward is to, uh, that we must create experiences and design spaces that get people to smile and laugh more. Um, and while they're in the river, that, um, and, and that we smile with the river and laugh with the river, that we're not laughing at the river. Even in those smiles that just doesn't make sense. Um, then perhaps we can get more people uh, to feel good about the river, to develop an affinity for the river. Perhaps, uh, like many of us here and myself, that uh, fell in love with the river. And we know that this is important because uh, we care for uh, things um, that we love. Uh, importantly also is that th there really hasn't been studies that break down who laughs the most based on age. But we can certainly, um, if you have kids, grandchildren, or great-grandchildren know that uh, young children laugh so much and uh, laugh with spirit. And so I would say that um, we need to build spaces that, well, let me back up. The sad part about it is that adults don't laugh as much as children do. 
and that there is a connection between play and laughter. And so I would say that, uh, again, we need to create experiences and design in a way that we keep our children laughing into adulthood and that we create and design spaces that adults remember how to laugh and how to smile. If we can do that, if we can do that, then we improve the river and we improve the health of our communities. Thank you. Um, so, on um, the more of the instrumental side of this discussion, meaning that I've had a, at this point, um, about an 18 or 19 year history with the river. And it was some of the early activists like Lewis who took me into the river um, and said, help me do something here. And I spent a lot of time with Lewis McGavin took him to Washington with us when we were lobbying Congress. He said, who would have thought years ago that I'd become a lobbyist, but it was always fun going through the halls of Congress with Lewis. He, was, <laughs> he, said, he always had a lot to say. <laughs> um, so we had an opportunity, the Bureau of Engineering, my boss and I, the city engineer, to do a master plan for the river, really based on the work, working on the, on the work that had come prior to uh, us by a lot of activists. And we did that and completed it for the river within the city of LA in 2007. And it built on a master plan that the county had done in 96 when they were really looking at just the easements, the right of way along the river. And we said, no, we have to think about how this impacts uh, public space and communities back into the neighborhoods. And I would say that one of the, I did, I learned to I love and appreciate the river in two ways. One, with people like Lewis just going into the river in all different locations. I particularly love going down the 6th Street Tunnel and you're, you get into the river at 6th Street and it's so incredibly quiet after coming out of the city that it has value that way and there's a slim layer of water on the bottom and there's always birds there. Um, and, you, and you come to appreciate what you call a kind of just uh, dystopic, but really wonderful gap that we should give people access to. And then the other way, I really appreciated the scale of what we could potentially change was a helicopter ride. I do have access to the fire department, so we said, and they do have to take test runs every once in a while, they're training people. So I've, I've gotten the opportunity to fly the river from its, its headwaters in the far west valley all the way down to uh, the port. And that's breathtaking, the scale of this concrete line channel that allowed the city to develop that functions still to this day with climate change may be challenged as a flood control mechanism of the first order. And when you see the scale of it from the air and you start to think about how to change it, it's, it's a little daunting. One of the things that we as, as, government age, as a government agency have always thought is that even the 32 miles in the river, we're going to do small pieces of it and we need everyone else to help us do other pieces of it. And I've worked very closely with Lauren Bond and her studio and 
a lot of other um, smaller and larger nonprofits who are doing work along the river. What we're trying to do right now are two things, I'd say. Um, um, one is we're, we're working with the county on their master plan, so maybe it's three things. Uh, we're doing projects along the river, three bridges we're building that will connect through Elysian Valley part uh, courses, bicycles and people, because one bridge is an equestrian bridge. Um, we built little segments of the bike path in the valley, and it's a you know it's an alternate route through the city. We tried to sell that to the federal government as an emergency egress, thinking maybe there's emergency money more than there is river money. Um, and we're now we did a, a very detailed study about filling in those gaps, like how could we make a continuous bike path through the valley so you could start in the far west valley and potentially bike all the way to Long Beach. And we also helped with adding. A, a large sum of money to measure R, and Metro is looking, so there's a lot of agencies working on there. Metro is looking at that bike path stretch through downtown, which is particularly challenging. And then what Mia refers to, because uh, Alex worked for Mia at the time that we did the master plan, and uh, we identified the Taylor Yard site as a key river site, because the river actually bends around that site. It was a rail yard for over 100 years. A lot of other activists had, had identified that earlier there. I can't tell you the numbers of studies I have on my bookshelf about Taylor Yard um, that had been done over the years. So this mayor stepped up and said, let's buy it. And I can't remember another time that we spent $60 million on uh, 41 acres of open space in the city to build a public open space with a nature focus. So that was a remarkable step for him to take and a remarkable opportunity to realize um, what had been the vision for a lot of people. Um, we also have partners on that with the MRCA because they've now bought a 12-acre easement on top of our site, which gets back a chunk of money, which is good, and we're happy to partner with them. As I've said, we've been happy to partner with a lot of people. And we've done preliminary studies, and some of you may have been at those meetings. We've come up with three schemes. Flooding remains a big concern, and some of the voices from that community that we've heard from is, we don't really want more open space. If you can't solve our flooding problem because the west side of Elysian Valley is now getting remapped into the floodplain, and that drives up their, their monthly costs because they have to buy flood insurance. And then we've heard from other community members a lot of concern about gentrification and displacement. And that remains a big issue. I mean, just, just building open space in our city needs open space. There's a lack of it. Unfortunately, drives up property values nearby. I'm not, I'm not in that business of thinking in a larger sense about uh, how do you stabilize housing. I'm in the business of, of building parks. So I'm sensitive to those issues. Um, and then we've heard others say, because the site was 100 years of rail yard, long before EPA. So that meant that you know they cleaned the trains and then they took the salt and poured it into the ground. So it is it is contaminated, and we've been uh, very upfront about the contamination and the uh, what will be required to clean it up, a combination of measures to clean it up in a cost-effective way. So we also have heard from the local community what we really want is just we want you to um, kind of heal the wound, which um, I think is a, a very nice way to think about. Uh, bringing life back to this piece of land along the river. We're now talking about, because if you, if you look at the map that Barbara has on the wall, 
There's a state park, Rio de Los Angeles State Park next door. There's a 42 acres we've bought, and there's about, I think it's 12 acres that state parks owns just to the north of us. We're now, now that we've done preliminary planning and looked both technically and also aesthetically, we as on our team, about thinking about the whole 100 acres, because um, it is 100 acres of open space, which is also remarkable that we have a chance to do that. So that's my primary project right now. I will also say before I pass it off, uh, we're building a new bridge at 6th Street. It's been a 15 to 20 year process. Uh, there was a point at which in order to realign the bridge, we spent $100 million buying real estate. And at that point, I got involved and said, wow, we bought all this land, what are we gonna do with it? So we've now planned a new 12 acre park, which connects to the river through the old tunnel. And once the bridge is done, we will now build a new 12-acre park, which has river access. So it is, in a sense, a river project. Um, so with that, I will pass it on back to Luke. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Um, Lauren really wishes she could be here, um, but... Uh, for the last three weeks, uh, she's been uh, every morning at 6 a.m. in the L.A. River uh, because we have begun construction on our bending the river back into the city. This footage that you're seeing will show you what uh, has transpired in the last three weeks. Um, uh, bending the river back into the city is a three-part infrastructure artwork of Lauren Vaughn. And uh, between the Broadway, North Broadway Bridge and the North Spring Street Bridge, you're looking at uh, uh, right now uh, the Spring Street Bridge. And um, something extraordinary happened there did, uh, in the last few weeks. And um, I just want to share with you uh, that this was a long time in the making. You're actually going down and uh, seeing footage from uh, the 6th Street entrance, and this is a blade uh, that actually cut, cut the floor of the LA River. This three-part infrastructure artwork is uh, diverse water from the floor of the LA River into the Metabolic Studio site. Uh, it will be raised up from uh, a lower level in a water wheel pit by a 48-foot stainless steel water wheel that uh, will deliver water to a constructed wetland and a treatment facility that will treat the water to uh, Title 22 standards, which is um, uh, irrigation requirement uh, for, uh, for spray irrigation in public parks, and will deliver the water to three public parks, to the Los Angeles State Historic Park, and, uh, and also uh, two city parks, the current uh, Downey um, pool and Recreation Center, and the new city park, the Albion Park. So uh, what, what you're seeing here is the first section coming out of the floor of the LA River. And it has taken a tremendous amount of time and energy uh, and thought to get to this point right here. And this is the first piece coming out to embed a pipe that will divert the water. And it is the, it is the first, uh, there is a piece of infrastructure that we put into the Spring Street Bridge, but this is the second and really monumental uh, um, uh, 
action of the project because um, in order to complete the project, it will require 68 permits from 22 agencies, federal, state, county, regional, and city. Uh, in order to start our process here in the LA River, we had to secure the 408 permit from the Army Corps of Engineers. So that just happened in the last month and we were able to mobilize uh, before the rainy season. Uh, part of gaining access to working in the LA River is that uh, the river needs to maintain, be maintained as a flood control system and construction is not, not possible between mid-October and mid-April. So in this last three weeks, we, are, we have been able to actually embed the first pieces of pipe that will eventually divert the water uh, as we uh, go back into the river next April. And um, these concrete slabs were actually removed and brought to the Metabolic Studio site. Uh, Lauren is, uh, intends to recycle all of the materials uh, and, and use them as part of the landscaping of the, uh, the water wheel site. And um, the, this is our provocation. This is our provocation. This is actually allowing people to imagine and see that another city is possible. Lauren talks about the work of the Metabolic Studio is supporting living systems and that one of the mottos that uh, she uses most readily is that artists must create on the same scale that the society has the capacity to destroy. So this is um, uh, uh, the first of, of many more actions to come to build the infrastructure to remove water for the first time since the channelization of the river back in the early 40s. Now it must remain a flood control system, but the city relied on it very heavily. Uh, uh, certainly the Tongva uh, indigenous population uh, originally, and um, even after the colonization through uh, many different water wheels and the Zanja Madre brought water to um, the El Pueblo. Uh, this is the first time since the channelization that the concrete jacket has been pierced and that water will be removed from the river, cleaned and used locally. Lauren talks about uh, the, uh, the work as rehydrating the original floodplains of the LA River. Now, all of you know that it doesn't rain a lot here in Los Angeles, but when it does, it, 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 it can be lot, lots, of, lots of water. And um, so uh, this will take a small portion of it and allow it to percolate into our public parks uh, one state park and two city parks uh, in the downtown Los Angeles area. So as we're flying out now, you're seeing the low flow channel on the right. You're seeing the first two pieces be removed. These first two pieces were necessary for a total of four pieces, which was the initial action to start a dewatering system so that we could get the, the, the land underneath the concrete jacket dry enough to start to embed uh, the pipes that will help feed uh, the, the uh, water wheel itself. So um, this is the third piece being removed. You're looking at this red baker's tank. That is a dewatering system that is helping uh, keep the um, uh, our area dry so that we can do the, the work that was necessary uh, to, uh, to put these pieces of pipe in place. This is a big aerial shot. The Metabolic Studio is on the left. 
You've got the LA River in the center. Uh, we are cutting these, uh, this channel um, in, in triangular shapes, and those have all been removed and brought up to the Metabolic Studio site, and those will be, um, help form the landscape that uh, surround the water wheel itself. And um, this has um, um, uh, been just a miraculous three weeks of my life, Lauren's life, and the life of the Metabolic Studio team. Uh, there are many team members here making an offering of, of just understanding what, what uh, this land beneath the concrete jacket uh, hasn't seen daylight in, in over 80 years. So um, uh, there's a lot of work to do yet. Uh, we're truly excited about what, uh, what lies ahead. And, um, and I think that uh, um, uh, there was a lot of excitement in the river. Um, the river, the, the uh, river is quite alive in seeing all of the um, uh, things that are happening there. Um, all the early mornings, all the birds um, uh, are, are creating um, a world in there that, um, that will only be enhanced when we are able to take some of the water that now flows out to Long Beach and to the ocean and use it to, to hydrate our parks locally. So um, these, are our, our, um, these are our team members. Uh, walking the site. You're looking at the Broadway Bridge right now, and um, we are so happy uh, to share with you the first images of the piercing of the jacket of the LA River. Thank you. and then we'd like very quickly to open it up and, and make this a real conversation. So I know that I have a lot of questions, but one that occurs to me that perhaps cuts across um, multiple presentations. And by the way, I just love the idea of artists creating at the scale at which society has destroyed. I mean, that is a massive project. So one of the things that... <laughs> so, in Victoria and Alex's article, they describe all of the competing interests which are working on the river, and they describe the tremendous excitement of citizens rediscovering the river. And I love what you said, you know, families, children, mountain lions, egrets. So you can just, you know, have a sense of a large family, um, multi-species family. But you have a line in your article, just a simple line that says, nonetheless, there remains the distinct possibility that money interests will distort the original ideas. <laughs> so given everything that's given everything that is happening right now, I mean given that uh, in this country, given a history in this city of money distorting a lot of idealism, a lot of, of, of things that people want to happen, how does how do we how does the city, how do the citizens of Los Angeles work to ensure that this isn't just an inside <coughs> grift of a lot of real estate developers. Maybe that's putting it harshly. No. 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 <laughs> 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 Take the mic. <laughs> 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 
don't do anything until that conversation happens. And unfortunately, I'm not in a position to, to stop. Um, because if we don't move forward with thinking about, for example, Taylor Yard and that 42 acres, um, some of our policymakers will think of other uses for it. You know, so I'm kind of in a mad rush to make sure we get an open space in there and that we find the money to do that before there's an economic downturn and you know the site's worth a lot. They built a high school on part of it, they built housing on part of it. Um, it's been too long in the making to not try and get that done. So I don't have the answer to what the moneyed interests are doing. That's a big question. I'm, I'm more focused on we need this open space and we need to create spaces where families can, can come together and kids can come and study birds in, in the afternoon after school and we can daylight storm drains and, and show how water gets clean and all the things that I've seen happen all around the world. We need to do it and we need not to be shy about doing it. And, and then we need to uh, impress upon our political leaders to address the issue of affordability and displacement. Can I ask a question? Yeah. How real still today is flooding? That's the Achilles heel. It's sort of like everybody arguing that, oh, it's the economy, the economy. Not for the river, but, oh, this is good for the economy, when it, it's really a red herring. When was the last time there was really a threat of flooding in the city? Okay, so. Flooding is very real. Through Elysian Valley, uh, because there's been a lot of invasive species that have grown up in that stretch, that, that stretch was built, I think it was for 15 years of protection. And the people in the room who are going to quote me on this, and I'm going to say right now that I don't know these numbers off the top of my head. So if I say 15 and it turns out it's 16, I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> I don't have these numbers all memorized. Um, but the flood protection has decreased because of a lot of invasive species. Also, with the county work that's being done, and their master plan is, they're spending a lot of money on it. They're doing a lot of technical studies. We look at climate change and those 100-year uh, rain events that the river was designed for, now it's, it's really going to be twice that much or three times that much. There's real concerns about flooding. Now, some people with short history say, okay, well, that happens once every 100 years. Why do we care? Um, you know, why do we really design the river for that very minimal moment? Um, but there's a lot of people who care, and it's not really just the money interest right now. With Taylor Yard, the biggest voice are the, uh, the homeowners and their, their you know, single family homes in Elysian Valley who really care about it. And in fact, one of the messages they've given us is until you can really solve our flood problem, don't do anything. And unfortunately, our site can't solve their flood problem, but we can do our best not to make their flood problem worse. I think it also becomes much more real when the dynamics of uh, affluent families move into areas that weren't as affluent. And so I say that because, you know, if you were to drive through Elysian Valley uh, 20 years ago, uh, stop signs weren't as prevalent. Uh, 
you didn't have uh, the attention of slowing down traffic, parking wasn't an issue, and suddenly different communities move in. So I would say that it becomes much more real because affluent families are saying, don't do anything now because it's gonna impact our, uh, the rates of uh, flood insurance for us. And, and, and so, uh, you know, sadly, um, that's the way it is. Sometimes the, the, the order of magnitude of some disasters is sometimes is beyond comprehension, let alone we can do anything about it. And it's actually a human conceit to think that we can. But, and you know, we're talking I'm, about a 200-year flood. Unfortunately, the river has functioned well yes. as a flood control channel. It has functioned. I've not seen the water come up since 1970. Oh. It's spilled over and, and in, in, since, in addition to that. since the 1938 flood, it is clear that when it rains, it can rain pretty heavy. And as someone who walks to the metabolic studio every day, even during the rain, that channel can fill up like you wouldn't believe. And their best thinking was to flush it all out to the ocean, and, um, and it's doing that. And the concrete speeds up the the, the 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 water to move it as quickly as possible out to the ocean. Um, uh, part of what what Lauren and the Metablock Studio is attempting to illustrate is that some of that water can be used in keeping the areas. It's kind of a curious thing that what seventy five to eighty percent of that water goes to the ocean in a desert climate. That it doesn't recharge. That's the, that's it's, the it's very curious. Uh, <laughs> if, if you were recharging aquifers periodically, yeah. it wouldn't build up well, to where it runs over. We just wanted to tax yourself to do that. We have measured all the paths in the county, and we're okay. and it's and, but you already voted for it. You did already. Good job. And it's, it's a it's a tax <laughs> in perpetuity yeah, to build ways to capture and infiltrate. The fact is that our our basin. Uh, we took a sylvan basin, which you described so beautifully in your article, and we paved it. What's that song? We paved paradise, mm -hmm. right? So now, all that water that once used to land here and be able to infiltrate gets very quickly uh, channeled into the river. So we need to unpave paradise, really, across. We need to unpave the basin to the greatest extent that we can. Then there still are, there still are proposals. The county master plan mentions it. We could potentially create that silver waterway through Elysian Valley. If we picked up the river in the valley before it turns the corner and pipe the whole thing in about a 28-foot diameter pipe all the way to downtown, we could do that. And other cities have done that to restore their rivers. It's not that. And we know how to drill. You know, we're building subways all over. We know how to do that kind of tunneling. And that is an option. You know, if we really want that sylvan, safe, nature-oriented environment in that stretch where we, the core couldn't pave the bottom because the groundwater is so high, we could do that. A couple so billion dollars and we could do that. <laughs> so I have more questions, but I'd love to open it up to anybody in the audience with questions. So start here and, and um, speak up. Um, I'd like to sort of address a larger question than, than pipes that you know, manly pipes we love to build. And really it's about, I think LA has always had a, a disease. The disease is really a lack of imagination. 
is just staggering for a town that manufactures imagination for the entire world. And yet, what's happened with the LA River has been where the river is sort of bending that, that problem. That we've seen is what the level of visioning is that, that's, that is really coming together around the LA River that is pathetically lacking in so many other areas where LA goes for the lowest common denominator. So my question other than just like, why is this the case? Why can't LA imagine itself out of a paper bag? Is how do we resist the tendency to go back into that lowest common denominator? We're seeing some great stuff here. But for example, we have the master planning process for the Silver Lake Reservoir underway as we speak across the Esca Hill. And it is probably close to going into that lowest common denominator rather than looking at its potential to be part of a sustainable future for the city and to create a magical public space that transforms people's lives. We, we need, and, and we can't say that we don't have the resources because the resources are there. The question is, is how do we keep pushing that visioning against all of those tendencies towards minimalist uh, uh, action? And, and I think that with all the incredible talent that we're seeing here and work that's been done, there are answers to that larger question. Even with the vision, and Lauren's vision has been, you know, large and extraordinary, the amount of time and energy that it's taken just to get a permission to cut a hole in the floor of the LA River is extraordinary. The, um, the going through the process with uh, the Army Corps of Engineers was a multi-year process where you were looking at, at having to justify and, and defend all of your structural, hydraulic, uh, maintenance, um, you name it, it needs to be maintained as a flood control system because that's what it's set up to do. And to even begin to alter that in any way has been a long, long process. That we even were able to get a 408 permit to do this was pretty extraordinary. And what Lauren's trying to do is, is show that that imagination is possible, but that process is quite laborious and time consuming. And if it wasn't for her commitment to, to uh, this project and uh, her vision, um, uh, showing that it was possible is not something that can be done overnight. It would be great if you could just rip up the, the, the concrete, but um, uh, to even cut one piece, it takes extraordinary commitment to a process that is multi-years in the making. I mean, I think that's a, that's a great question that you ask and something that, um, is, I think that the Los Angeles River and the Silver Lake Reservoir are great examples of that sort of proceeding in a way and sort of giving us some lessons about how we marshal a different imagination for the, the city. And I, and I think that there's, um, you know, some of the things I think that are really important is just giving access to these places and that there's an incredibly catalytic effect of people engaging with these places. And so it becomes a sort of incremental process of nurturing the imagination through access and engagement. I mean, I think that's the best ways in which we can do it. And I think at the Silver Lake Reservoir, you could see there's so much resistance to anything happening. And as soon as people got out there and experienced the meadow or whatever it was, that they opened up you know, incrementally, their minds were transformed. And then I also think of the, in the Los Angeles River, the kayaking was transformative because it raised the level of experience and connection. 
you really had an amazing experience on that river that you didn't have before and you understood it in a different way. And so I do think that the incremental has to be an incremental, but also has to be some things like the Metabolic Studio. I mean, that's an amazing resource we have to like have this uh, icebreaker cut through the red tape, you know, to get, get us to another level of imagination. But I, I, love, I love the kind of incremental, you know, quality of these spaces and how many actors are involved and again, like how it's, the, the river was just, just human enough, like you could get down to it, there was a nice, nice slope bank, you know, that like allowed for so many different uses of people to be engaged. And if we just kind of continue to build a, a consciousness of the river that we can share, then we can start to imagine in larger ways. But it's thorny, you know. Hi, uh, first of all, I'd say thank you, Miguel, for the land acknowledgement. I also want to call out white male privilege and interrupting to, to start questions before we actually start. Yeah, I did that. Um, and then I'd like to say um, we are we're humans, so we centralize ourselves. How can we decentralize humans in the story and think about how to think about this space for nature and the wildlife and the plants and animals and fungi, not just the humans? Mm. So we are focused on doing that. And you know I reached out to you about the Sixth Street, um, trying to get some feedback at Sixth Street uh, to try to secure somebody to create some bird habitat. But for Taylor Yard, we're very focused on our, uh, particularly our winged friends, but um, because we're on the Pacific Highway, but all of the flora and fauna that could exist if we bring this site back to life. And so we're working with a PhD candidate from UCLA on a kind of urban habitat assessment system because I also knocked my head against the wall for 10 years with the Army Corps of Engineers, supposed to be three, it took 10, to get them to actually take the arbor plan back to D.C. and we got President Obama to sign it just before we left office, which really has allowed a lot of what we're, what we're talking about up here to happen, just to have the Army Corps actually <coughs> their name on a document to say we can rethink the river for habitat. So um, we're, we're, we, the Army Corps' 10-year study looked at habitat in a very particular way, and we're now challenging that tool that we I think it's positive, and some of you in the audience have worked on the predecessor documents that are allowing us to challenge that. And I can say the last meeting I missed with the court, but they said, okay, we'll, we'll think about another way to think about urban habitat corridors, pathways from Taylor to up into the hills that are nearby, into the river, from the river up into the park, the Legion Park, and, and Griffith Park. So I'm excited by that. Now, I will say that. Uh, the initial community meetings, and we always do extensive community outreach, and we try and hear everyone's voices, and uh, we get a lot of conflicting opinions. <laughs> like, don't do that, absolutely do that. Um, so we try systematically, as the county has done in their plan, to catalog what we're hearing. Um, but there was a very loud voice when we started tailing that saying, just build a soccer uh, complex. We need a soccer complex. We don't have enough soccer fields. We need a competition soccer complex. Mm -hmm. um, and it took many meetings, and, and I understood what these folks
folks were saying they run, um, the, most of the people who are talking to me run nonprofit soccer organizations. They're not the, whatever, it's semi-professional kids' soccer organizations. They were saying that, that keeps our kids off the streets, you know, after school. It's really, um, it builds their, their, their self-worth and it builds their sense of accomplishment. So after much discussion, we all agree that really what we should do is prove, improve the soccer field at the adjacent park um, and create a nature-focused space with kids' activities still, something that they could do after school that's focused on nature. Um, so that was, a, that was a great compromise to that whole discussion. Because I totally understood, I mean, we went and surveyed all the soccer fields in the area, and I, I totally understood I'm a former soccer mom, so I totally understood the, the desire for that. So, you know, I, I, I'm happy to have more input. Sixth Street, give me input on Sixth Street, you know. I just want to get the scientists to, like, do what I possibly can. Well, so we're working with scientists. We're working with scientists. Um, here we go. Uh, Lori Vaughn in the Metabolic Studio um, uh, started a um, farm lab uh, right after her Not a Cornfield project, which was an inquiry into supporting living systems. And she's recently launched, you know, phase two of that, which is a deeper investigation of how how um, uh, our work can uh, support living systems uh, by investigating um, uh, soil, water, seed process, uh, and and understand. That there are many considerations uh, to um, to take into account uh, beyond the ones that just uh, support uh, uh, humans, and that part of you know the the greening of, of of a public park certainly is an amenity for for the people that that occupy that park, but also for all of the plants, trees, uh, uh, bees, and and. Uh, uh, insects and animals that occupy those spaces and since we've uh, been in the process of greening the spaces uh, that we occupy adjacent to the river we've seen a complete increase of, of, of some of those um, a wildlife return including a coyote that is now in downtown Los Angeles kind of occupying a corner of our, our site in Lincoln Heights <laughs> Um, it's, I, one thing I wanted to say was that I, I think that it's, it's such an important question, the non-human element. And uh, I, I know Mia used the word rewilding, which I find so questionable um, because it is assuming that we humans can somehow bring something back that, first of all, existed before, so it has this very funny relationship to the past. Um, but also that we somehow have the design skills to know what to do for um, for animals and, and birds and things. So I think there's a there there is um, I think care needs to be taken with some of the words that that we use. But also uh, I know that certainly in my uh, approach here, when I was thinking about history, I was really thinking so much about human history. And I know that there have been people like Travis Longcore, who I hope might say a few words, who've been working on the historical ecology. And so really looking at the, um, the life in the area also from a historical perspective, because obviously nature is not static, right? And so there are kind of things that are flourishing now that didn't flourish 100 years ago. And so how do we then, um, you know, in terms of a restoration project, right? What do we, what kinds of species are we interested in introducing or helping to flourish, and which species are we not? Um, but I know Travis had his hand up, and so maybe 
we can hear from the scientists also. Uh, one of the scientists in the room. Yes, I did have my hand. Thank you. So, I have to share a little bit thanks to the Nature Conservancy for funding the study where I was able to look at the Asian Valley and some detail. And, and one of the things that's just been hitting and looking at this picture above your heads all the time is like, we have so reified that channel as the river. Like, that's the river. That's not the river. You know, that's like where we pick to put and straighten that channel out. And now we put all this energy and reify that into like this thing that's the river. When we even talk about we're next to it if we're just not in the channel. No. That lands the whole landscape was, you know, different parts of becoming the river. Right? And the water moved out and across and there are different terraces. And there's so much more to how this moved across the landscape was dynamic. And that we lose our, I think, some of the potential ecological and social benefits if we just focus on the channel. Right? And it's so easy because the truth is we can't restore the river in the sense of it doing what it used to do, which is you know, down its mouth turning into an 18 mile wide uh, flood uh, of, of water going to the Pacific Ocean in, in a quarter of That's not going to happen yet. We can't let it happen. Uh, or we lose our society, basically. So let's acknowledge that this is a flood control structure that is going to has to function as a flood control structure. But if we look at the history of where things used to be and where they still are incised in the landscape and, and sort of covered over by layer after layer of human occupation, but still have some of these functions that we could bring back and enhance, it may widen our minds a little bit about what we can do about connecting to our remaining open spaces, about you know, integrating it in through the neighborhoods and the, the nature in the neighborhoods that people know is there. And if we asked and asked them you know, years ago, we would know it was there. Um, that there's more to it than just the channel. I just want to just keep that in mind because the, if you look at the ecological history and build on it as well, you know, you know we're not restoring the truth. And, and we should just and we can stop thinking about that as just the river, but there's this whole system around it to uh, <coughs> dig into, understand, and then integrate back into sort of more, make the river extend farther out, even while we keep the channel where it is. Thank you. Um, a, a couple of things I really appreciated hearing and from Alex and both. Talking a little bit about the assets of those rivers already, and also talking about this idea of kinship that Miguel mentioned. Um, I, I'm on the river a lot, kayaking and, and all that kind of thing. And one of the experiences I have is that uh, kids and adults alike, um, rewilding, I, I, I also have some issue with that word. On the other hand, uh, there is a manner in which people uh, experience nature, particularly in a city where it, it seems unfamiliar in a way, but it's always present, um, where there's a learning process. And I think one of the questions that I have long term is what that human interaction is with the space and how we uh, change ourselves in relation to it. And I mean, I've had the experience, uh, even though I don't want to reify that section of the Vision Valley, I will say that there are assets there that are incredible. This last year, we found a native species of frog that wasn't prior identified, and it's the predominant species there. And to Miguel's point about smiles, to be out in spring with children 
and getting close enough to a frog and hearing it and seeing it and recording it and then recounting that experience is, is really an amazing thing. I'm not sure exactly what my point is, except to say, <laughs> no, but, but except to say that I think that this question about what are the existing assets of the river that are already good is a very important part. And that one, one part of that is figuring out how do we lead ourselves back into it. And Deborah also mentioned the soundscape of the river. This is something not well understood, but when you're down in there, you're like in a theater. You know, you're the actor, the stage is up there, and the sound of the city passes over you. And I think that that's a very important asset already that exists that we also want to work with. I, can, can I just make a quick comment that I, I you know, just combining Travis and Steve's comment uh, that, you know, and, and a little bit of, of the work, that, and a lot of the work that Metabolic has been doing. Mike, Mike's here, uh, Mike Bannon. Um, you know, it takes a lot to get a four-way permit to dechannelize the actual river, but you don't need a four-way permit from the Army Corps to dechannelize the social infrastructure yeah. around the river. And I think that's the opportunity. You know, where, how do we work with communities uh, to ensure, you know, I know, uh, Debs Park, the Audubon Center at Debs Park has been doing a lot of work around uh, planting uh, the right sorts of, of, of plants that will bring the birds and follow a path. And those are the things. And, and you don't need to take the concrete out immediately. You could do stuff around the community. And that's, I think, that's the opportunity to galvanize and to bring smiles and to bring laughter to communities in the interim. Right? I don't know what 30 years will bring. I, I know that the channel, other than a natural disaster, that will prompt us to do differently. But aside of that, uh, I, I think we don't have to wait for that permit to do what we have to do. Because the river is, is, is a cultural place for the city. You know, to think of it as a physical location is thinking small about the river. Okay. It's, a, it's a cultural environment for, for the entire region. And that's why some places will remain as a concrete channel, and some will become open-ended, and the parks will seep into the neighborhoods, and that's why contributions of artists and historians that speak about the, I remember reading your book and talking, and you told me to look at the, look at the dialogue between the, the Spanish and Mexican farmers and what they knew about the history of the river because the white people didn't know it. If we, if we pull that together, if we make that an open area for discussion, then we're not talking about public parks, we're talking about a cultural phenomenon. And that changes the story altogether. We're also talking about <clears throat> an opportunity for education uh, in a city where most people don't even know where their water comes from. And I'll tell you, as someone uh, who uh, works at the studio and has brought many um, uh, uh, students through our uh, studio, um, uh, it's a revelation for some to realize that that was the source of this city and how we survived oh, historically. Uh, 
And since the uh, advent of the Los Angeles Aqueduct and the ones that followed, um, people don't understand the, the, the efforts that the city goes through to import its water from other places. And I think that there's an educational opportunity here. So it's not just what can be done in the river, but um, I think that, that uh, there's a great emphasis in, 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 um, uh, uh, in understanding certain cultural motifs in, within California with the missions and the history, but like water as, in, as, as, in, as a um, uh, material to be understood culturally and as part of an educational system is, is really lacking, I mean, at least from my perspective. The there was the Nahos from neighborhoods all over Los Angeles. There was a water distribution system that was in place. None of us, we know so little about it, many of us. So I have a question about that. I'm thinking back to what Victoria said at the start about you, want, you were happy as a scholar to have a chance to address a larger audience. And what you said, Bill, about money likes to hide. And, and by money, I really didn't mean necessarily just money in my first question. I meant private interests. So one question now is, is especially in 2019, when we are doing a real-life experiment and seeing the sort of evisceration of journalism, where is this discussion happening? I mean, where should it happen? And how can we, as a society, just find ways to support these large public discussions so people know where their water comes from, know about the projects. Um, and now obviously it's a question that we at Places Journal you know, think about, where is the public conversation happening? Um, I think you're still waiting to find out if we're going to have another architecture critic in the LA Times. I have an idea. So I, 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 I believe in three Cs, uh, tone, tactic, and timing. And I think our tactic really has to be, has to change. There's this uh, two Michelin star uh, chef uh, in Switzerland who his, in, in his restaurant, when he invites people to come and eat, uh, people show up to the restaurant and it's just tables with white linens, uh, no cutlery, there's no silverware, there's no plates, there's no cups, there's nothing on it. And all there is, is this uh, a plastic cow in the middle of the table. And um, eventually, someone picks up the cow, and the cow goes, moo! And people laugh at that table, and then another person sitting in that same restaurant uh, sees they have a little cow in front of them, and they pick up the cow too, and it goes, moo! And suddenly, Everybody is laughing. Back to my smiles and laughter. Everybody is laughing, and there's a cacophony of laughter, and it's only at that precise time that the dishes come out. While it's only a two Michelin star restaurant, <laughs> it is a very well-visited restaurant because the food tastes outstanding. And the reason the food tastes outstanding it's because they're receiving it in a way when they're laughing and they're enjoying themselves. And I think we need to change the setting in which we present the information we want people to capture. We have to present information in ways that people are enjoying themselves, that they're seeing things differently. Uh, as an example, you know, I've been coordinating this thing for the speaker for the last couple of years, and you know, we did 
7,000 people showed up in one night in the channel. We put a Ferris wheel down there. You know, there was no come here and learn about the river. It was come here, enjoy yourselves, have fun. And while people were down there, hey, is that the river? Wow, what a different experience. So we have to change the way, we have to change our tactics in which we engage people to learn about the issues that we care about so they can also care about them as well. Uh, just a slightly different take on that. I think it's teenagers. It's the most interesting group of Americans now. Absolutely. The most awake, the, the most engaged. I mean, I love my collegiate students. The 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds. That's where we've got to go. Because they're going to grow up with this. And they've got a longer vision. We're all, we term them in our imaginations. If you're 15 years old, you don't do that. They're thinking way ahead for generations. And we, I think we need to capture that. You have to get the American yeah. involved. <laughs> so we, we heard about the, the history of the river and the long period coming here and, and going forward we hope for very much. And, and we heard about laughing and smiling. And, and, and so it seems to me that one of the fundamental things for us to think about now is the experience of the What is it like? For animals, still very hungry, and he said, we are presently living in our children's past. We are presently living in our children's past. You don't need a time machine. The time for action is now. What are we doing? Because we can control 
what our children's future will be like. And that includes ecology. Thank you for bringing that up, and I agree with you. I think uh, the table needs to be bigger. I think the discussion needs to be longer. And we really need to look at solutions, not with today's technology, but with what we might expect, uh, how we can solve these issues. I don't have the answers, but uh, I hope I'm part of the discussion. That's a good spot to end. Thank you all.